This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. There is a lot when it comes to COVID headlines. We just mentioned New Jersey expanding who can get the vaccine. We've talked about Germany raising its warning on France after a rapid rise in cases there. The EU's two biggest countries, Germany and France, trying to deal with a resurgent pandemic. Tim, there are new infections around the globe. There are. It's happening at a time when when vaccinations are continuing to move more quickly, Carol. So Mm -hmm. it's this really... I don't want to use the term interesting, but it's a concerning dynamic because we're doing so well in some areas, but there are signs uh, that all this progress or a lot of it could be undone really easily. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center, joining us each and every Friday on the phone from New York City. Dr. Lusbader, how do you, how do you make sense of, of the data that we're seeing right now? Because we are putting more than 2 million shots into arms each and every day. But we're starting to see rising hospitalizations and case numbers. And some of those hospitalizations in some states are younger people. No question. Happy Friday. Happy Passover, uh, Tim and Carol. Mm. Hope you guys are doing well. Thank you. you uh, and we, we are seeing uh, a bit of a rise in cases. And it's hard to know specifically if there's one a specific contributing factor. Certainly, we're making good progress on the vaccine, but by no means is everyone vaccinated. That should put certainly a significant um, crimp in viral replication. Uh, there are some people who think, you know, spring break and people traveling more now uh, that are not vaccinated may, may create a little bit of a surge. Uh, there are other people who think that some of the variants that are known to be a little bit more contagious. In other words, a higher viral count when people sneeze or cough uh, may be playing a role. We don't really have a lot of evidence that the um, variants that are present and are growing are really um, uh, refractory to the vaccine. In other words, it does seem that the vaccine uh, or the various vaccines, the mRNA and the and the J&J, uh, do seem at this point to uh, uh, be effective. So there are probably a variety of reasons uh, why we're seeing a little bit uh, of an uh, upswing in that. And certainly globally, there are many areas that are uh, have not been vaccinated, large areas of South America, Africa, and elsewhere. So that all provides a pool for the virus to replicate. And we certainly just now are talking about vaccinating younger people who, of course, travel and, and the virus we know spreads more uh, with uh, in in schools and and other places where kids uh, spring break where where they gather so that probably relates to some of the issues we're seeing now. Hey, listen, one thing that I thought was pretty interesting, uh, Ian, this week is I feel like we're getting uh, some of the big pharmaceutical companies. Actually, a lot of them uh, are working on antivirals for treatment, potential therapies to kind of add to the arsenal to fight COVID. For, especially for those who maybe ultimately don't take the vaccine, uh, Merck, I think Pfizer, some of them are working on them. Um, how important do you think something like this, a development of this, will be really helping us in truly finally getting COVID under control, especially since they are, we have to just face up to it, right? There are going to be millions of people who don't take the vaccine or won't get it soon enough. 
Yeah, there's a, a great deal, unfortunately, of, of vaccine hesitancy and uh, problems like AstraZeneca, where there was a little bit of an issue in reporting and the numbers weren't quite accurate, and there was a little bit of manipulation of data, uh, that only serves to make people more anxious that there's something you know, to hide or, or that uh, potentially there's some problem. The vaccines really have been very effective, very safe. We're not really seeing a lot of complications, and we really encourage people to do it. Despite that, there is a lot of vaccine hesitancy, uh, and part of that does seem to be based on uh, educational level and socioeconomic level. And some people just are uh, afraid to to uh, to go there for a whole variety of other reasons. So these uh, medications that attack viral replication will be very important, kind of the Tamiflu, as it were, for coronavirus. Right now, we do treat people who develop uh, COVID with some symptoms and risk factors with IV monoclonal antibodies. And that works pretty well, but that is coming in for an IV infusion. Right. The goal... The goal of pills, kind of like Tamiflu, uh, would be great. And it does make sense. We, we should be able to develop uh, uh, medications to reduce viral replication. And certainly Mark and others have very encouraging data. So that will be sort of the second-line treatment for people who develop COVID that you then diagnose and may be symptomatic. They can take pills. But obviously the best thing would really be to, like smallpox, try and vaccinate people and eliminate the underlying infection rather than constantly having to treat people for COVID when they get it. But that's well, Dr. at least a, a reasonable option. Doctor, we only have a minute left, but, but th that could take years. I mean, think about how long it took to eradicate smallpox. That is the type of thing that took decades. Yes. I mean, when you're talking about vaccinating 8 billion people or 8 plus billion people, it's a huge project. Fortunately, we do have effective vaccines that are ramping up in production. But bit by bit, I think that's the only way to really uh, get rid of COVID-19. Yeah. Wow. I want to get right back to Dr. Ian Lospader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Lango, and still with us on the phone in New York City. So Tim teed this up, uh, Dr. Lospader, about a former top U.S. health official. He is Robert Redfield, he led the U.S. Uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That was during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. He was on CNN, and he said he thinks the coronavirus originated in a lab in Wuhan, China, and began spreading as early as September of 2019. Your reaction, and why is this important that we figure out exactly where this came from? Well, I think it's uh, uh, more than coincidental that the first cases uh, arose in Wuhan, possibly related to that wet market, which was uh, only a short distance away from the virology lab. So I'm, I'm uh, not surprised either. You know, we do know a number of infections do arise um, from Asia, whether they're the seasonal flu, which often uh, does uh, uh, spread to the rest of the world. Hard to know why that is. Part of it may be hygiene or other issues. Um, and certainly we've seen other infections, um, SARS and, and so forth, uh, arise there. But I, I would agree with uh, Redfield that uh, not only is it likely, the fact wow. that a lot of our people were blocked from really investigating at the time and doing uh, due diligence and only months, many months later, almost a year later, you know, then be allowed to look at the lab when it could be potentially cleaned up and all the evidence gone. 
Um, it doesn't encourage uh, uh, confidence uh, in, in collegiality that, that we're all one planet and we all need to work together on these things. So, you know, when, when people are blocked from investigating or teams are blocked from coming over, you know, whether or not it, it really did ar- arise from the lab, it just doesn't encourage a lot of um, positive feeling. Right. But if we had known potentially back in September, might it have played out differently? Yes. Might it have played out differently? Maybe, maybe. Uh, Look, pandemics, uh, as we're seeing, even with vaccines and treatment, uh, can spread. But had we known, I think we would have stopped air travel. We would have, you know, done other mitigation measures and taken this much more seriously Mm. than months of infection that probably spread throughout the world in the United States, Italy and elsewhere. I think many, many lives, uh, maybe millions could have been saved. Uh, So I think that really was bad form. And uh, uh, had people known and not communicated that, uh, that really um, is sinful. And uh, I don't think we'll ever know, but I think there's a lot of data that, that makes it very suspicious. And it just makes us try to, should make us try to work together as a planet for these things. That's why you have the WHO. Well, given the virus is out, given that we are entering year two of a pandemic right now, why is it still important to understand the origins? Is that about preventing the next pandemic? Well, uh, yes. Certainly, whether this occurred from a natural mutation or whether it occurred from a lab leak, uh, whether it was a lab-engineered experiment that went wrong, that's very important because if, in fact, this was due to research that was not uh, monitored or, or controlled correctly, that needs a very different approach than if this was a naturally occurring mutation you know, in a bat that happened to be in a live market. Either way, we need to address the proximity of uh, wild animals that, that um, have virus with humans that may not have antibodies. And certainly we need to address it differently if this was an engineered virus uh, from a virology lab that was not uh, correctly controlled. I think that's very important data. And I don't know if we'll ever find out. Yeah, we're just, Tim and I are sitting with that. Wow. Um, Dr. Ian Lasbader, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Have a, have a good weekend. And we'll talk to you next week. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone from New York City. You know, it's a global world and cooperation on things like climate change or pandemics, Tim, it's crucial. It is. And look, I I think at the end of the day, the pandemic has happened. We're in the midst of it. The thing that needs to happen is we need to be prepared for the next one. Mm -hmm. And of course, get through this one. I had a conversation with a big CEO this morning preparing for a Bloomberg Live event. And she's like, there are more coming. So in terms of systems and being ready with everything and anything, we've got to be there. Yeah, but I hope it's not this bad again. Yeah, exactly. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. And the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week, it's on newsstands. There is one in my hand right now. It's online and on the Bloomberg. It includes a business section takeover of vaccine passports and a pretty cool cover as well. Uh, let's get an overview of the magazine and this business takeover. Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Axis line in Brooklyn. Uh, Joel, good to have you here with us. Um, this uh, business takeover, we talked about Jim, we talked about it, I should say, with Jim Ellis uh, earlier in the week, but it really gets into vaccine passports and whether or not it might work. 
Yeah, and there, it, there's a lot of hope to this. And when you think about where the world's headed with the number of people, especially in, in, in America, that are vaccinated and the amount that we will see in the weeks to come, this idea of a vaccine passport starts to get really alluring because, boy, would I like to go on the vacation after being rolled <laughs> up at home for a yes. while. But the, the way that we're going to be able to travel is probably going to depend on these passports. And while there's some promise there, there's also some potential perils. Well, how is this so, so different, Joel, when we think about the vaccinations that are required to actually travel places? And, and look, I got to tell you, I'm pretty old school when it comes to traveling internationally. I don't know if this was instilled into me by my parents just when I was young, but I carry around that little yellow card that comes yeah, from... Yeah, you're the only one. You're I know. I, I realized that when I got married and my wife was like, what are you doing? You're such a weirdo. And like, I'm not even going to talk about my money belt, okay? I'm just kidding. Oh, the money belt. The money Is belt. it the thin kind? Yeah, Is it of the course. Thin kind? Totally hidden. You'll never, you'll yeah. never get me, pickpockets. You'll never get me. Um, yep. How so- is this different? It, it, it is, it's different in a couple different ways. And one being that there's this tech element that is very nascent. Um, and the airlines are really the ones who are driving that forward right now. And there's a number of sort of competing different uh, solutions. And we don't even know if they're going to end up being solutions. Like, I mean, if you get to the airport and this thing doesn't work, like, are you still going to be able to travel? I don't know. Um, <laughs> and you, you kind of, you know, it, uh, it's also it might allow you on the plane. But where this could head to is like, not only something that you could use for travel, but you could see it being used at a gym or a restaurant or a store even. So all of that is um, uh, a big TK to come. We don't know what it means yet. We don't know if any of those are there yet. The first place that we're going to see it will be airports and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps entering countries. Yeah. And for those people, you know, if, you, if you're like a Greece is one of the examples that, that Jim probably spoke about, you're a tourist dependent economy like you are just yearning to get more people in your country and and get over the past year so the hope of of these vaccine passports is that a version of normalcy might return for for places that are are desperate for tourism dollars jill can i just tell you first of all on nexi which is our internal conferencing for our audience i know jill you know what it is he just um tim just held up it's like our zoom (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. Tim just held up for me his little yellow vaccine card that he had on with him, like just like that. The well, other- what I really this- want to see is Tim. I want Tim to go on a vacation with that, and we'll find out how it goes. I'm just uh, wondering, oh. do you wear socks with sandals, Tim? Are you one of those? Hey, no comment, okay? What I do on vacation is what yes. I do on vacation. <laughs> Stays on vacation. That, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let him have that. Uh, but, you know, the other interesting things that I think come up in this package are the uh, you know the biggest thing of all that the pandemic has revealed is this this world of inequality and the haves and the have-nots and here again is another example of it of the people who will have vaccine passports and everyone else who won't and mm-hmm. that even goes for locals who you know you might go to Greece but like you know everyone that you're seeing there might not be vaccinated yet and it also raises all these concerns about uh, the varying um, efficacies of the vaccines because none of them are 100%. We know that there are m- many variants out there. So it also has a somewhat of a false false security to it. And all of that, you know, we, we, we hope that the pandemic comes to an end, but um, some of these things may end up prolonging it too. Yeah. Hey, Joel, when you think about a business takeover for the magazine and when, when you're, you know, seriously thinking about what you're going to feature 
Take us into a little bit about how the sausage is made and, and, and how you decide on one of these topics, especially one like vaccine passports. So we do these um, packages. I, th I try to do them. Um, we, we try to do them at Business Week with regularity. And we, we, we think about finding a topic that we all find interesting. And then we try and look at that topic from as many different angles as we can, uh, always through that, the lens of business. And so vaccine passport was a thing that as some of the members of the staff, of the Business Week staff, started to get vaccinated mm. uh, and, and float the ideas of, of vacations, we were all like, wait a second, how is this going to work? And so then we just started asking people in the newsroom as many questions as we could of like, and, and that spawned, you know, this multifaceted uh, package that, that we brought to life in the magazine. And it, you know, elements of travel and health and tech, and then we try and ha also have some graphics. So we have many more like that to come. Um, they're some of my most favorite things, and we always think of them as something that's worthy of the cover when we when we embark on those projects. Hey, we just have about 40 seconds, 45, 50 seconds. Um, tee up something else in the magazine that you like. Oh, we've got so much more. Um, mm. A couple more of my favorites. Um, there's a COVID pill uh, mm -hmm. that Merck has under development. We should see data for that by the end of the month. It's going to be a really interesting thing. We all we've heard enough about vaccines at this point. This is a treatment, and we have so few of those for COVID. And what the Merck one represents, um, which we expect to be one of the first, is the farthest one of the farthest along, and and uh, and is in late stage trials. It, it's a whole other dimension in the in the fight against COVID, which is when someone's really sick, like yeah. maybe you can give them give them something even before they're really sick that can head off the worst. All right. And there's also a fun thing in pursuits, uh, finding your happy place and anything that Kate Crater does. I'm like, I'm there. I'm totally there. Yeah. We, it's a great little food centric package yeah. because um, as the weather gets nicer, it's like, let's do let's do some more eating outside. Right. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. Count me up. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So I'm thinking, Tim, it's probably already been a Jeopardy question, but it is unquestionably one of our top stories this week, a top story every day, including today. And the answer is? What is the Suez Canal? <laughs> Nicely done. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm not even good at Jeopardy. We didn't even rehearse that. that. I didn't. We I, didn't. I love what it works out. Uh, the other question is, what's up with the massive container vessel that's blocking it? So, And we're hearing it's going to take longer right, than we all thought to unblock it. Yeah, Bloomberg reporting that it could take until Wednesday to get this thing dislodged. Yeah. So listen, we're going to get into why it is more than uh, why it is so important. Keep in mind, it was built hundreds of years ago, not hundreds of years ago, but 150 years ago. Yeah. 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 Give or take. All right. Uh, some mental math there. I, yeah. can, I can deal with it. <laughs> I need my fingers on this one. Bloomberg News energy reporter Robert Tuttle joining us on the phone in Calgary. Hey, Robert, love your story. You can ask my team when I'm like, oh, we've got him. Yay. Because I feel like Let's explain the Suez Canal. I think these are things we either learned about in grade school history and then just kind of threw it away and just take it for granted when it comes to moving trade around. But it it's really important. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hugely important. Uh, as you said, it was built uh, more than a century ago, went into operation in 1869. It's played a central role in the last in that since it's been open, it's played a central role through two world wars, uh, revolutions. It's been a really important uh, conduit for the world. Uh, one could say it almost helped hold together the British Empire in some, to some extent for a while there. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
it holds today. It carries about 12% of the world's trade goes through it. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the biggest, probably the most important aspect of that trade is, of course, oil. You know, the Saudi Arabia, the world's biggest exporter, sends oil through the canal uh, to to Europe and to North America. Oil comes the other way, as does uh, uh, to reach Asian markets from wherever West Africa, from the U.S. Uh, but it's uh, it's absolutely essential. Uh, plays an essential role to the in the in world trade, and so its blockage is costing quite a bit of money, uh, holding up about ten billion dollars of goods a day that are just waiting there. Now, uh, Robert, as you wrote in your piece, uh, that answers many questions about the Suez Canal. If you don't go through the Kuwait, uh, the Suez Canal like Mid East crude oil to Europe, for example, would have to travel an extra six thousand miles. It could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, not just in extra fuel costs, but of course, extra time. Yeah, it's about a 15 day, it's about an extra 15 day journey. Uh, the bunker fuel, the, the fuel cost for the ships, you know, you're, you'll get roughly $300,000, I guess, if that's what we're, what, that's what we're hearing right now. It is offset somewhat by the tolls to go through the canal. Which can cost hundreds of thousand dollars. Okay, I just well. have to stop you there. <laughs> I did not know <laughs> until I read this piece, Robert, that the yeah. Suez Canal had tolls that cost. Uh, I didn't. I, I never thought about the Suez Canal up until now. I think, like many people listening, yeah. but yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars in tolls to go through it. Yeah, for a big uh, for a big uh, you know tanker or a shipping container for for a big. Uh, Container vessel like the one that got stuck, that got stuck. Yeah, it's 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 an enormous expense. But I mean, when you consider how much they're carrying and how much the money they're going to make off that, it's it's not a it's not a massive amount. But it is, yeah, it's a, and and the canal itself is a huge money earner for the Egyptian government. I think uh, last year we it was five, it was more than five billion dollars it brought in. They're trying to actually double that by increasing traffic. There's a big plan to expand the canal. But it is, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, if you showed up on a little uh, sailboat, which some people do, I don't know what the cost of sailing that through, but a huge container vessel, yeah. No easy, bit, no know. easy pass on that one, right? Or no, like counting <laughs> no. my counting my quarters, you know, uh, that are like on the floor of my car, like it used to be on the Garden State Parkway. Um, yeah, it's like, but it's wild. There are, you know, when it comes to trade, like again, I was saying earlier, we all take it for so, you know, we take it for granted. Stuff just gets here, but there yeah. are specific highways, and if you are, if you ever spend time on the water, there are shipping channels like there are very specific routes that these guys are constantly these big barges these big container ships that's what they use regularly yeah that's right i mean the the you know when when something like this happens you know these ship these shipping companies have to like look and they have to think well what do i do am i going to stay here parked until they open this we don't know when that'll be maybe it'll be a week maybe it'll take several weeks uh or do i do i move and just Spend the money and go around the around the Cape of Good Hope, around Africa. It's it's a tough decision, you know. We, but, but we've lived without the canal before. In 1967, uh, the war between Israel and its Arab neighbors resulted in the canal being shut for a full eight years. And you imagine they had to completely reroute everything during that time. Uh, it, it, there was a story, an interesting story about that, was that the number of 
several ships, I think a dozen, got stuck in the canal, and the sailors were, were sort of left there for that entire period of time, sort of having to fend for themselves uh, until uh, until they could reopen. And it, it's, it was called the Yellow Fleet. But, but Robert, and look, that's an extraordinary thing to have happened then. But since then, global mm-hmm. trade has absolutely exploded. Globalization yeah. has exploded, and it's a completely different world now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, uh, the, the amount of global trade, and, and it, it's evident by the size of this, this ship. Uh, you know, ships themselves have gotten, the container ships have grown like, have grown like double in size in the last 10 years because they're trying to fit as much as they can on, uh, on, on each ship so that they can lower the cost. And what you end up with is this, you know, massive ship that's like the Empire State Building. It's as long as the Empire State Building is high. And it's, you know, and when they get stuck, well, that, that creates a huge problem. Uh, and yeah. uh, that, that's going to be a problem in the future, you know, well, if, if we don't find ways to deal with this. Yeah, these ships are getting bigger and bigger. I just remember the Port of Miami and all these ports up and down the East Coast just competing for all these large uh, container ships and, and kind of widening their ports and able to, uh, you know, be able to take them in. Hey, Robert, great reporting. Robert Tuttle, energy reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Calgary. Everything you wanted to know about the Suez Canal. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks, just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. And man, what a day. We have been bouncing around. Charlie's been really walking us through the up and down trade. We are near our best levels of the session here. We've got a rally off the lows, and we've definitely picked up some momentum in the last hour. And that means we are on track, Tim, for some gains in the Dow and the S&P this week. Still lower on the NASDAQ. We know there's been pressure on that tech trade. But nonetheless, quite a turnaround in the last hour or so. Yeah, it really is. The S&P 500, as we heard from Charlie, up more than 1% right now. And I'm also looking at year-to-date for the Dow, 7.5% and 5.2% for the S&P 500. That NASDAQ, just 1.3%. Amazing. So let's get into it uh, with Jay Lippman. He is co-founder and president of Ethic. It's a tech-driven asset manager creating sustainable investment portfolios. Jay is back with us, and uh, he's on the phone in New York City. How are you? I'm well. It is fantastic to be back with you. Well, it's great to have you back. So tell us a little bit about um, how you're seeing the markets right now. It is just big, broad picture here. Volatility, once again, on a day where we often see uh, the major equity averages bouncing around. How do you see it? Well, I think, you know, we see things in a slightly more long-term manner, obviously, uh, being, you know, a passive uh, index provider. I think that the trend that we're seeing is that people are being more cognizant, especially with the new presidential administration, of this new focus on climate, on a lot of the different uh, social issues oriented towards ESG investing. And especially with, you know, what the SEC has been coming out and saying, you know, this form of investing with sustainable ESG considerations is really looking to get entrenched. So, you know, we believe that, um, you know, regardless of the volatility, the direction is heading towards those more sustainable investments because this is the way that the regulators are going to be looking at it. And this is the way that the market's going to be uh, really reflecting that. So do you see that manifesting in the sense of, of companies actually coming out 
and making changes to the way that they do business that align with these ESG standards? Or do you see it manifesting in some other way? Well, I think the reality is we've been seeing it for a number of years, right? We've already been seeing companies recognizing that there are certain things that they can be at the front of the pack around. And if they do so and make that public commitment to really be a leader in their respective field of that space, then they're going to be associated that, with that and get the brand equity around it. And a good example would be Microsoft coming out and saying they were going to be the first technology company to become carbon negative, right, by their goal. Or whether it was Delta coming out and saying they were going to be the first company to go, uh, first airline to go carbon neutral, right? We're seeing companies recognize that you've got consumer demand desiring this. You've got investor demand, putting more money towards those companies that are becoming more sustainable, or at least trying to lead the pack. And as a result, you're seeing companies change those business plans, change their marketing messages, change the ways they make products, sell products, uh, run their supply chains. And we believe that we're going to see this accelerate as more demand accelerates from consumers, but also assets fly from uh, from investors. Hey, listen, one thing I wanted to ask you, Jay, and I was looking for a story uh, from earlier in the week that was on the Bloomberg, but it was specifically about fund houses, investment houses that are just watching the tremendous flows going into ESG specifically. And so slapping ESG labels on everything just to attract investment money, even though they might not really be ESG. And the problem is ESG criteria, right? There's not like one set rules that says, okay, you you know, you take off all the boxes to truly be an ESG investment. So how do we be smart about this? And how are you kind of filtering through to make sure it's not a lot of greenwashing that's going on here in an investment? Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic question because, you know, fundamentally, we don't believe there are people inside asset managers, you know, that are vindictively trying to slap ESG on products and, uh, you know, not trying to make these products as sustainable as they can. But, you know, in reality, a lot of these products are, you know, structurally constrained from being as sustainable as other products can be. And one of the, you know, primary mechanisms for that constraint is just the simple vehicle of something like an ETF or a mutual fund that has to be one size fits all, which is, you know, why what we do at Ethic is so focused on customization and personalization through something called direct indexing, which allows you to get that index exposure, but in a way that's personalized around the specific values you prioritize we believe that greenwashing is actually a reflection of the constraints of products that have to be built for the entirety of the market. And so when they say things like they are low carbon or uh, what they are addressing social issues, you have to remember that those products have to be served to the entirety of the financial market and can't be as specific as some investors may want, which is why personalization is so important to get a product that you feel is not greenwashed because it reflects what you care about. And, mm. you know, we talk a lot here about this idea of, you know, it should, this is a saying from back home in England, but, you know, does it say what it says on the tin, right? If it's a low carbon strategy, are there oil companies in it, right? If it's a social strategy, are there companies that profit from the private prison system or predatory lending or are, um, you know, uh, uh, are doing things that are exacerbating environmental racism and injustice, for example. And so it's really understanding what your priorities are and then looking inside the product to see if it is in fact actually what it says on the tin. We have to run. I know we didn't really get to talk about women a lot and diversity, but I know that's part of your mission. Do you have 30 seconds here? Because I know, listen, the research shows it makes sense financially to have diverse people at your companies. Just got 20 seconds here. Your thoughts real quickly. I think, look, if you're a company and you are not celebrating and investing in hiring from half of the population based on gender, you're failing your company and you're failing your your, right. your shareholders. That's- 
Jay, we'll get you back real soon, I promise. Jay Lipman, co-founder, president of Ethic, on the phone in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.